0: hey good morning all welcome to the common good podcast on wednesdays we like to talk about the role of faith in the common good in the world that we find ourselves living in and it is the 26th of april today and uh very glad to have john ward with us john is uh, an author so we're going to be talking about uh this this book and other books that john has written also a journalist and someone who uh his own story fits very well in the conversation of this podcast as we a lot of time asking people to consider what's been their own identity what's been their own religious tradition what has formed their sense of civic engagement how do they live in the world well john has written a great book called uh, testimony inside the evangelical movement that failed the generation and writes it as an insider to that very evangelical movement and somebody who was a part of that generation. So, John, thank you so much. Uh, as we were chatting earlier, I'm really thrilled that you're here and uh, really appreciate this book a lot. So thanks for being with us today. Oh, I'm glad to be here, Doug. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. All right. So uh, catch us up on, on what you're doing now. You, um, you're, you live in D.C. Uh, by the way, we'd like to check in with the weather. It's gorgeous in Minneapolis today. Dan's in the background. I'm guessing it's great in Michigan. How are things in Washington, D.C. today?
1: I was just texting my wife that it is really nice outside. It it, it was hot last week and then, um, it cooled down, I think Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and we're back up to high sixties, low, no humidity. Really nice. Yeah.
0: It's just, yeah, there's something magical about Washington DC in the spring. So, yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, something that hasn't been as beautiful to people is, you know, their experience inside the evangelical tradition that seemed to break the promises that were made to a lot of people when they were younger and, and deep adherence. So we'll talk a, a bit about that. But remind us what, what, what you're doing now. You're you're a journalist. You're, um, t- tell us how, how you do that. And sure. what kind of journalism are you doing? I've been
1: in this job for 20 plus years. Um, and about 2011, I started covering uh, political campaigns from a national perspective. Uh, that was a Huffington Post at the time. And so I covered the 2012 presidential election. I got very wrapped up in uh, sort of a competitive um, drive to get scoops to be a a, a nationally known political reporter, which really involves trying to go behind the curtain of what's happening inside national politics Hmm. um, and, and bringing readers inside with you, a lot of cachet is built up around taking people behind the curtain um, yeah. and getting sort of little nuggets of information. Uh, for example, 2012, I I was, I think I came in second. I, I, I would like to be able to say that I came in first. I think Chuck Todd beat me by two minutes or something on breaking the news of the vice presidential pick, um, which was Paul Ryan at the time. But that was kind of where I was at for several years and then um, 2016 rolls around and, and, we, and we see what happens to the Republican party. And that sent me in a different trajectory where mm-hmm. I started to um, think about how can I do my job in a way that is not just about building my own career or brand, but mm-hmm. about trying to serve uh, our readers to help them understand what is happening to our politics. Um, and that that's really regardless of where they stand ideologically or which party they're a part of or who they voted for, I really began to want to try to illuminate, um, how politics works. What are the structural drivers Mm -hmm. that um, create outcomes, good, bad, or otherwise? Um, And so I started to try to do that and to um, also try to think about how can I do journalism that points towards solutions and not just, um, you know, pointing out what are problems. And part of that is, you know, there is an incentive in journalism to um, stand back, critique and go no further, Um, just point out what's wrong. Um, and I felt an obligation and a call to, to do more than that and to put a little bit of skin in the game in terms of saying, you know, I'm a citizen of this country as mm-hmm. well, mm-hmm. as a, even as I'm also a journalist. Um, I do think that sometimes journalism can take the sort of bystander approach too far um, and, and not have an investment. Um, and as we'll probably talk about, I think evangelicalism is... Um, imbues people with a certain sense of a bystander effect and or maybe actually more of an antagonist effect um, because uh, there's certainly not a stakeholder attitude that I see towards sort of the common good.
0: Yeah. Let's let's talk a little bit about about that that journalism just so people get a picture of it. You know, we tend to use phrases like journalism, media, the news. We kind of use those interchangeably, right? And and they really are a large sector. There are many kinds of journalism, there's different kinds of media, there's different sorts of sorts of news. What is it that keeps you in it? Like what's what's the part of those worlds that you say to yourself, this is really where I want to share and spend the time of my life. Because you've chosen, you write about it in the book, we can get to that in a bit, but uh, journalism's actually been very helpful for you, being a journalist, taking out a journalistic perspective. Can you talk a bit about what that is and what part of the whole industry of journalism, media, news you you see yourself in?
1: Sure. Just the first thing that comes to mind is that I have questioned over the last couple of years whether I wanted to stay in journalism. It's been discouraging to pour a lot of time into uh, trying to to, to act, um, to perform an act of service uh, for um, those who choose to read what I write um, and to feel as if it's doesn't matter, you know, at the end of the day, um, just because, because of the, the massive amount of change that's happened to Um, the information environment in in this country and in the world Mm -hmm. over the last two decades, certainly. And you kind of alluded to it that there's a lot of different kinds of media. I remember when I was covering um, the Obama White House um, in 2009 for The Washington Times, which is a conservative paper, Mm -hmm. um, but I was able to to develop some level of a working relationship with... um, White House press secretary at the time, Robert Gibbs. And I did an interview with him early on in that administration, trying to understand how they were going to be approaching presidential communications in a media environment that I was writing about then was very fractured. Um, and uh, and sort of the old gatekeepers were, were losing power. Uh, that was 14 years ago. And that you know, that um, dynamic has really just sort of increased and intensified year over year yeah uh, with a lot of compounding interest. So we're really in a wild west media environment. Now, I came up in a newspaper, the Washington Times, and was trained in how to, you know, write an inverted pyramid news story, which is just get to the point, tell the reader the the top news. Um, I was also trained um, in reporting on basic facts at a at a local news level, writing about Washington D.C. and some of the suburbs, you know, very basic local news type stuff. That that type of training um, is much rarer now. I think you know if you if you go to a uh, a newspaper or a couple online news outlets, you'll get some of that. Um, local news organizations, I think, provide some of that. Um, I think journalism schools provide some of that. but back in the day you know bef- when I was coming up it before that, I think journalism schools were looked at as not enough hmm. not providing enough of that kind of training because you actually need to do it. and if you're writing for your college newspaper that's a way to, to get some of that training. Right. but it really, it really does take you know touch the stove moments where you get the name of a parent. Whose child has died? Wrong. Like if you, that that never happened yeah. to me, but you know, other things like that have happened. I've done things like that, um, and it's really those moments of getting uh, issues, small details, but issues of vital importance, at least to some person or small group of people. It's when you get those things wrong. Yeah, right on. Yeah, in the past that that you felt the weight of. How important it is to get it right. That that is uh, that is not quite the case these days. I mean, I wrote uh, a survival guide. I've written two survival guides for normal people over the last few years, and in one of them, I talked about how you know if if anybody can make any um, accusation or claim online, let's say about you know national politics or national issues. Um, and if we don't hold our media and communication and information environment to a standard, then ultimately we're going to live in a world where uh, anybody can make any claim they want about you online and there won't be much we can do about it. So that actually at the end of the day is one of the reasons why I think it's so important to have these conversations about um, trying to uphold standards and rules for, uh, you know, the conversation we have about public life and, and, you know, outside the realm of private belief.
0: Yeah. And it sounds like what you're saying, and and I, I I hope you are, that there's a deal that's made between the, the industries of journalism, media, news, and the people who consume it, that those, that people are going to act in good, in good faith, that they're going to serve one another, right? That they're going to, there's, that there's an implicit deal often that deal is broken, right? And that's a frustration that we live with and and what do people do about it? So they change media outlets or they listen to different types or they take on alternative formats. That's a very similar thing to what religion does, right? That there's a a deal made. And one of the things I think is fascinating about your book, um, the the subtitle, you know, Inside a Movement, the Evangelical Movement That Failed a Generation is provocative. It's what the book is about. But so is the actual title, which is Testimony. Right, this book is, and there's a lot of reporters who are writing books about the trying to understand the evangelical circumstance and where we found ourselves. We're an organization that you know formed to try to not only understand that, but move it and bump it and give people an alternative to it. So there's a lot of work being done in that in those spaces. But this book is called testimony, and and it is right. It's you're talking about your own experience as as an insider. And then where you find yourself now, and I find that to be to be intriguing, um, and and to be interesting. W- was framing your own history, past uh, desires, frustrations from an e- with an evangelical perspective of the world twenty years ago through today, was that? Were you confident in writing a book that's this that's this sort of first person focused that tells your own story? Uh, did you did you struggle with that? Did the publisher want more of that, less of it? Like, how did you end up saying no? Look, John Ward is actually going to be a character in this book, and my own experience is going to be the lens is going to be a major part of the lens by which I tell this uh, to tell what what I'm going to tell in this book.
1: You know, it'll be really interesting is to ask me this question in ten or twenty years because. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm sure that I'll have some more precise thoughts on it at that point, uh, especially with the the um, the benefit of hindsight. <laughs> um, but um, I think the the germ the germination of this book actually lies in the fact that you know God made me a writer, and by that I just mean um, I carried a quote around in my wallet for a long time from David Remnick, who's the editor of the New Yorker that he, you know, he gave to the Washington post in the late nineties, I think when he came on, I carried this around in my wallet for years. It just said like, it doesn't matter what you're writing about, you know, what matters is that you write beautifully about it. So I kind of always had this desire to uh, praise, praise the world through, uh, through writing. Um, mm-hmm. And praise is not always flattery. Um, praise is only effective if it's based in reality, um, which which is why I think critique is an important part of, of the process. Um, and so I kind of always knew that I had grown up in a unique, different and pretty interesting environment and I kind of always knew I wanted to write about it. Um, and for many years, I just sort of sat on it, thought, you know, occasionally about it, but didn't really see a, a relevance for my story to any broader, you know, set of circumstances or, or anything, really. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I, in, you know, there's a sense in which I wrote my first book, which I, I think I, w- I sold it in 2013 and then published it in 2019, um, and that was just about, you know, political history about Ted Kennedy and Jimmy Carter. Um, I really enjoyed writing that book just as I mostly really enjoyed writing this book. I just love the process. Uh, I, le- I learned a ton through the process, but in, there is a way and there is one aspect in which I wrote that first book to be able to publish this book because at the time I didn't really mm-hmm. see a, a, a way for me to publish a book about, you um, my upbringing, um, nor did I, again, see a relevance. Yeah. Um, Yeah. What's the point in that? Right. Right. And so then, you know, after the last several years, I began to see some relevance for it. And the question of putting myself into the story brings me back again to what I'll think about it in 10 to 20 years. Um, I think, I think at the time. I just felt like this was a good way to tell the story. Um, and, and I still feel that way. Yeah. Um, and of course it's uncomfortable to put things out there that are personal. And it's, you know, what is really fascinating is the interior process of self questioning that goes on, um, about, you know, what were my motives for doing, <laughs> for doing, this? you know, and, and when you layer on top of that, some of my background in like Calvinist Christianity, um, it, it makes that whole dynamic even more, uh, complicated, but, mm-hmm. um, but you know, it, it's out there and at a certain point you're, uh, you're pregnant with it and you, you have to, uh, to move forward and, 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 you know, accept what comes.
0: You have a, a great preface and introduction. In fact, that encourage people before the book arrives, if they're going to order, or they can get to their bookstore to pick it up, to go when they go on to to Amazon to click on the look inside part and they can read the preface and read the introduction. They're both spectacular. In the preface, you tell a little uh, story. Oh, not, not there yet, Dan, that's going to come from the, uh, thanks, that's going to come from the introduction. But in the preface, you have this little bit where you recount a story of being on Morning Joe in October of 2016. I actually remember you being on Morning Joe in in, in uh, October of 2016. I'm super into politics and stuff. I pay a lot of attention anytime they have conversations about evangelicalism, and mm-hmm. you you make a you you had done some pieces for Yahoo News, and a lot of us were thinking about what role evangelicals were going to play and how they were going to act and how they're going to turn out. What were their motivations and all this stuff? Yeah. And I remember w- after reading your uh, your. Recounting of that the the short story uh, of your experience there um, that that I saw that and felt similarly how the many people who cover the media and talk about evangelicals as a political force, which mm-hmm. they are, there's a just a cultural force, don't always have firsthand knowledge of the ideas and the language and the motivations, and there's a lot of people who just simply say like what is with these people right and they literally these people or those people them right they don't they don't know on the inside and uh, i wonder if you started the book with that preface the preface with that story because you wanted to remind people that look, there's a complicated story here. Not making any excuses for people. It's just that there are reasons why people behave and act the way they do and think the way they do, right? They don't, they're not just they're not just robots following orders that have, you know, that have been programmed into them. They're actually yeah. motivated by things that make sense to them and they have a whole view of the world that that makes sense to them. Can you talk a little bit about that? What you know about the evangelical experience now as someone who as a journalist also covers it. And interacts with other people in media and outside of media, um, people who consume your media, trying to understand this group of people, and and how do you talk about th- that overall? In addition to when someone says, "Hey, what's your you know what's your book about?" But just uh, your role of helping people understand the issues that motivate uh, evangelicals, and 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 yeah. the, the the lack of understanding. I'm not even sure it's always misunderstand, but at least the lack of understanding.
1: Yeah, the words that are coming to mind that I think I'll use here are patience and totalizing. And I'll just say by way of a, a preface to this that one of the reasons that we have the scene on Morning Joe at the very beginning. I believe it was suggested to me maybe. Um I can't remember by who, but by someone who was helping me um revise the manuscript a- at an earlier, you know, date that there needed to be some scene early on to kind of introduce the reader to, I don't know who I am now relatively and, and sort of what I do and what my credentials are um, in some respects. Um, I'm a journalist. I go on TV. Occasionally I I've, I've done work on evangelicalism. And then the other theme coming out of that first scene is one of liminality or being in between. Mm -hmm worlds or, or being what Mako Fujimura calls a border stalker, which is not at home yeah. in, in any one particular context or tribal group and trying to, to bring understanding between groups. Um, and I think what you were getting at in your question was this word totalizing, which is if you're in a fairly closed off Subculture and it could be evangelicalism it could be other ones too um, mm-hmm. you know that that closed system of knowledge and practice and culture um, embeds itself in you pretty deeply um, and I think that dynamic is even you know more uh, more true if you're raised in an environment like that um, yeah. and and spend All or most of your childhood and your formative years in that world. And that was me. Um, You know, our church was in the early days coming out of the Jesus movement in the 70s and 80s. Our church really kept to itself and um, shunned outsiders and looked at outsiders. And I'm not just talking about. Non Christians. I'm talking about other Christians right. who weren't in our church. We looked at outsiders as not having, you know, the the answers that we had. So pretty naive and hubristic. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there are elements of that to different degrees within a lot of evangelicalism. I think, and I think the reason why I can make that assertion fairly confidently is because I think a lot of evangelicalism has been shaped. Um, by the way, by the dispensationalist uh, mindset that was really dominant in the '60s, '70s, '80s, maybe even into the '90s and even the aughts, I think that's changing now. The dispensationalist theology, w- which really uh, talks and thinks a lot about the rapture and the end times, um, the New Apostolic Reformation is sort of agnostic on it or doesn't talk about it. But but practically speaking, they take. Um, a different approach where they're trying to bring God's kingdom on earth rather than sort of waiting for uh, the rapture. But that mindset, I think, drives people to be isolationist and escapist, the dispensational mindset. Yeah.
0: Yeah, For people who don't know that, that phrase represents the uh, dispensations represents the idea that there's different periods of time and dispensations. And we're living, this theory goes, we're living in one of those times where we're preparing ourselves for life eternal. So the implication of that often is don't get so involved in things of the earth. Right, Right. Spend your time preparing yourself, getting personally ready, collectively ready as a religion, a faith community for the life that God's going to have for you. And that stands in opposition to people who are like, No, hang on a minute. We have a call to make things here on earth. May the kingdom come and your will be done on earth as is in heaven. Those worlds are in competition. I think what you're raising, which is important because a lot of people only – have heard Christianity from one or the other of those vantage points, right? Where they're like, I thought we were supposed to be good to our neighbors and love each other and reach out and care and, you know, uh, think about the least of these. And others are like, I thought we were supposed to protect ourselves from a combative world and keep ourselves pure for the later days. And then they look at what's going on now and they're like, I have no idea what's happening. Like, why are these people wanting to take over the federal government? And local yep. school boards, in order to enact their version of Christianity, that sounds like a theocracy and not a theology. And so there's all this swirl that goes around. And uh, so I'm just sort of clarifying that that yeah. you're able to walk into this world, recognize sort of the landscape. You know, you're I don't know, you're like a docent in a in a in an art gallery or a, a naturalist in a in a you know, out in the woods, saying to people, "Notice this and look at that, and here's how this functions, and here's how we understand these things." that that can be quite that whole world can be quite uh, hard for people to wrap their heads around and know and know what's going on and for sure.
1: Yeah. And what's interesting also is that the new Calvinism, which became very popular 20 plus years ago, they're not dispensationalists, really, they don't really, I don't think they have that view of the end of the of the end of the world, or their eschatology. Uh, But um, they nonetheless, also Tend to stay out of the public square for the most part, um, and it's actually the the people who were, uh, you know, I use these archetypes in the book. CJ Mahaney and Lou Engel, mm-hmm. and Lou Angle is more of an archetype of the people who were really into. Uh, I don't know if he was into dispensationalism, but they would have been more that direction in the seventies, and they've now become much more political. And the folks who uh, went the new Calvinist direction, like CJ, uh, are more quietist. So, yeah, all of this to say. Um, these worlds are totalizing, and and say say like,
0: more about that. What that means, yeah. like these worlds yeah. are totalizing. That sometimes people can think that the thing that they've experienced is the, you know, is the, the end all and be all. But say say a bit about the, what the impact of a totalizing ideas, and even for people who don't know the word totalizing. Yeah, well, it was actually just
1: something that somebody said in a conversation er- earlier this week, and I thought that's really helpful, um, and. It just means that your your sense of uh, reality is uh, is defined pretty comprehensively, I guess, by, by the subculture that you're in. Um, there's not a ton of recognition that there are multiple other perspectives with valid points of view or questions, maybe even, um, that challenge your assumptions or, or your view. Um, and so it leads to a, sen- a certain sense of, um, overconfidence, I think in, in, in your judgments and, and a lack, maybe more importantly, a lack of, uh, pause or questioning, um, which can lead to holding your, Presumptions with a more open hand or looser grasp. I think. Yeah. Um,
0: so can I can I quote back to you something you did write in the introduction here uh, that we'll, we we can put this part up Dan uh, on the screen. Um, you, you have this section where in the introduction, which by the way, your introduction is just just tremendous as a standalone piece. I would just commend it. To, I don't know if you originally wrote it as an essay or something else, but it's really quite really quite remarkable, and I think encapsulates some very powerful ideas that people are really very much going to want. You have this bit where you're writing about the role of truth and its importance to you, both in your Christian faith, but also how journalism has helped you pursue truth in a larger way. And so you're talking about truth and you, if it's okay, if I read your words back to you, you, you write this, truth is not a script. It's not a cheat sheet for life. By the way, I read that truth is not a cheat sheet for life. And I'm like, that is just a great line. So good for you, I wanted you to say more about when that popped into your head, if you, or if that was a piece you use all the time. Then you go on to say, truth does not come from picking a set of answers and then arranging all the questions so they line up correctly. Truth starts with questions. It requires an openness to other points of views and experiences, to being wrong, to changing one's minds, a commitment to dr- to truth involves a passion to embrace critical thinking. I mean, you go on, you skip part. I'm going to read, read this next little bit and then let you talk about it. First and foremost, you say truth seekers don't search for battles outside themselves to win. Instead, truth seekers examine their own point of view, searching for holes, weaknesses and errors in their own thinking. Truth seekers don't pretend to understand other, others' points of views. They inhabit them, walk around in them, try to gain perspective. They hold their conclusions with an open hand. And yet, at the end of the day, a truth seeker does not shy away from speaking up. So, I, I don't know if that's what you were getting at here, you know, with the phrase totalizing it, but those are just great paragraphs. You said, you know, your point is to know what you're writing about, write about it in beautiful ways. I, I I would I would grant a a beauty award to those to those phrases, I think they're really great. Do you want to say any more about that, or do you feel like that that sort of does it, or what what? No,
1: you, know, when you lay
0: I, this out in the introduction. I think it's just it seems important to what you're up to. No, you're you're
1: drawing some something out right now, which that 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 point about starting with the answers and then arranging the questions. There's something to that point that's not in the text there which is that I think a lot in a lot of these totalizing cultures, we can start out not just with answers, but with answers about ultimate things. Yeah. And then we rearrange the questions of probably more material things to mm. fit the answers. Mm-hmm, so I think the mm-hmm. extra dynamic to that idea that I didn't fully lay out there, but I observe that there is often, in religious settings, you know, I observe that there is a certainty about things that we cannot prove yeah. ultimately that require faith. And then what has been striking is that over the past few years in particular, there has been a relativism about things that we actually can know with a high degree of certainty. Um, and there has been a relativistic attitude towards those things because of the chaotic information right. environment and because of a breakdown, I argue, in the evangelical church's ability or intent to disciple its followers into discernment and public character. There has been a breakdown in many aspects of, of American life and, and in global life, but certainly in the evangelical church in the ability to have, I think a healthy process for assessing these more concrete issues. And yet there's relativism about things we can know and certainty about things we can't know. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's this odd dynamic. I mean, I just came have I've, my personal view on faith is that if you say, you know something for sure, you have somewhat eliminated the need for faith because faith is the gift that we need to, uh, to have hope and some degree of confidence mm-hmm. in something that we actually have to acknowledge we don't know for sure is
0: true. Yeah, yeah, to- totally. And look, and it's not only inside religion where this stuff happens, right? There, uh, a totalizing attitude, especially a totalizing attitude about others is super common right um uh, like hey no i i know enough to, to understand what motivates those people or what they do and part of the struggle with all this is that we're human beings and most of us when it comes to our beliefs we are not organizing our beliefs from most significant and important up to least important and then drawing conclusions about other beliefs off of some pyramid Rather, we have a whole lot of beliefs rolling around in our minds and our hearts and our experiences and our family stories. We're trying to reconcile those most of the time. We have things that make sense on uh, in one set of circumstances that are totally opposite of the way we would think about it in another one. And we're just trying to make sense of it all. And systems, religious systems, political systems, media systems, um, like to... Uh, eliminate all of that, uh, all of that frustrate, all of that difference, all that frustration, you, know, you just kind of flatten out the curves, add a little story in there to add some personal dynamic to it. Um, and, and, and that is a way to get after some things we need to know, you know, a lot of times say, say it again, yes, it
1: is, it is something we, we can't walk around, you know, just never coming to conclusions. But there's also money at the bottom of a lot of this, the desire for profit. And um, and, and you know, that is a lot of what eliminates nuance um, and context in the current media world that we, that we live in because the business sure. models that we have all drive us towards uh, in the media, drives towards uh, you know, accumulation of as many eyeballs on cable TV or clicks on, on the internet. Um, and what clicks and what rates is not complexity. It is simplicity and reductionism and black versus white, good versus evil, villains versus heroes. And mm-hmm. uh, I've tried very hard in this book, and I don't know—I'm sure I failed in some respects to to do this. But I tried very hard not to de- not to demonize any one individual or group of people, mm-hmm. uh, while still critiquing people who I think made mistakes, who did you know damage to others. But ultimately, at the end of the day, not to feel as if I'm upset with them as much as I'm upset with the incentive structures that I think Mm. shape, shape their behavior.
0: Yeah. And look, and, and we, we all, we all participate in them, right? Uh, Not, not only with our dollars, I'm not just saying the things you choose to spend your money on, which is true. Uh, That's just a, a different point than one that I'm trying to get at. We participate in them because they serve us in some way. Right. One of the big questions we like to ask around our work when we talk to somebody of difference is not only what do you believe and why do you believe it? Those are important questions, Mm -hmm. but to consider what function that belief has in a person's life, because we tend to have uh, results come from the things that we hold deeply. And if we don't interrogate for ourselves and think about in an empathic way about the role that it plays in another person's life, you sort of miss the human element of it. And I guess it's fine to go through life just turning people into into data points, you know, and and information centers and uh, facts. But we're better off in a human experience, which is mostly what we're dealing with here, recognizing that people have all kinds of motivations for all sorts of things that they don't have explanations for. Yes. I, as, as somebody who's been a parent, now I have adult children, and just now we're in the second sort of generation. And, and when you're parenting, there's this tendency to want to say to your kids, especially adolescent age kids, like, why did you do that? as if someone's behavior has has an explanation for why it makes sense. Like our kids and I as a teenager and a young adult, even as an older adult, have done such dumbass things that when someone says, and how did that make sense? You're like, there is no world in which this made sense. It doesn't mean I didn't do it. It doesn't mean I might even do it again, because that's not how a human being makes their way through life. And sometimes we look at other groups, whether it's non-evangelicals looking at evangelicals or religious people looking at non-religious people or whatever, however it goes. And we're like, well, they probably have really good reasons for what they're doing. And if I poke around enough, I'll figure out what the reasons are. And if I find out who pays them, then I'll know their reasons. Like, good luck with that. Because I've just known too many people that it's never, it's never once been been that simple to sort of get to the, get to the the bottom of something, you know, on, on why it is the way that it is. Yeah. I mean, I mentioned
1: the word patience earlier, and we've talked about the ways that our, our contexts and our incentive structures shape us. I've talked about how these totalizing cultures are deeply rooted in us and embedded in us. And so I think for people outside of a religious subculture, um, that, you know, I'm sort of making, I hope, somewhat explicitly, certainly implicitly, I'm making a, a request to be patient with people who are coming from that uh, context who you might disagree with. If you see them making an effort to, to grow or evolve or learn, you know, take that as a, as a sign of positivity. And I would even apply this to people who are inside, you know, maybe evangelicalism who might listen to me and think, you're just talking down at me and saying, oh, other people should be patient with me because I need to become more like you. Well, no, I'm just saying, if you disagree with me, and you want me to come more towards you, um, I'd ask for your patience as well. uh, Because that's the way we should, that's what it means to love one another, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, sort of, you know, give me a minute here. This is, this doesn't, these kinds of changes don't, They don't come easy to 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 people can can, can i also ask you this it feels like and i haven't i haven't finished all the books so that's that's my apology so maybe you get to this but i feel like you're saying it in the the first third of the book that i've had a chance to read that you don't come at this uh conversation about um an evangelical movement that failed the generation as someone for whom. The system didn't work, or you were violated by it, or it was a broken thing that was just all, uh, you know, uh, smoke and mirrors and a big and a big trick. You're like, no, look, it it works. It does a thing. I was in that world. It produced a certain outcome. That outcome maybe even got me to where I am today. I'm trying mm-hmm. to reconcile mm-hmm. how complex it is and how many things there are and how many competing narratives are within this. So you're approaching it as someone for whom the system worked and you still want to say it was a failure or or Mm -hmm. it failed it it failed in some of its higher in some of its higher callings is is that is that right that you're not coming at it as someone for whom you're like hey i've got it you know i i want i want to you know i want to get uh uh, Katie Porter on the fact that, you know, there's a, there, there was a, a violation of a promise from a sale here. Uh, you know, and I want, I want the, uh, I want someone to, to put in a claim about how the the warranty was faulty. You're saying I was in and this thing, like you start out with, you know, in your room, listening to music and you tell stories about its positive impact in your life. Mm. And yeah. yet it wasn't all that. Is that, is that fair? Is that how you think about it?
1: It's a great question. I love it. Um, I would say two things. One, I've never considered myself a victim of, you know, the way I was raised. Um, I think that word can obviously be applied to some people in this context, obviously those who were physically or sexually abused or emotionally or spiritually clearly abused, you know, and, and, and oftentimes were then ill served. Um, or further abused by the church's response to that. You know, that's that's clearly a, a category of victimization. It's much more complicated for people like me, um, who, uh, you know, somebody texted me uh, from the church and said, you know, it's they enjoyed the book. They weren't criticizing it. They were they were saying uh, it's cool to see people who have landed on their feet after coming through um, that experience. And it made me think like, what is, you know, what is the difference between somebody who quote unquote lands on their feet and somebody who doesn't, who's not in that clear category of victimization. And I think that has been what has motivated me to uh, engage in this critique. That's one thing that's motivated me to make this critique is that these kinds of subcultures, um, people like myself, um, you know, I, I had a pretty stable... Family life. Um, I didn't have a, a ton of generational trauma. I had a fairly um, strong background to come from, mm-hmm. but I think people who are coming from a more a more vulnerable vulnerable place, um, who you know you could you could call them weaker. I don't want to disparage people who come from a, a more vulnerable place, but let's just say that that's how we describe them. I think those are the folks who end up getting hurt more, Mm -hmm. even if they're not clear victims by the way these cultures operate. Hmm. The second reason I was motivated to make this critique is because, as you say, I think there are elements of my upbringing that have served me well. Mm -hmm. I think those revolve around the category of private character. Um, That is how to be a good person in your relationships, in your family, uh, in your home in your workplace in your church with your friends etc and I think evangelicalism writ large has largely failed in in training people how to be how to exercise public character so there's that mm-hmm. differentiation between private character and public character and public character um, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr called it civic righteousness um, it's how to be a valuable productive, contributing member of the body politic. And that doesn't mean it's just Mm -hmm. all about politics. It means being a a valuable member of society, your local community starting there and then working your way up to whatever degree of, you know, connection or influence or impact you have beyond the community that you walk around in every day. But it really does start, I think, with the local community. And so I think the evangelical community or church has not emphasized this um, for a lot of reasons, one of which is, you know, it's individualism, it's focus on an individual faith rather than having a component of uh, com- community-minded faith, you know. Mm-hmm. There are other streams of Christianity that do a good job of emphasizing uh, the impact of collective sin or the impact of sin on the group. Um, that's just not something that evangelical evangelicalism really talks about a lot. Um, I also think the isolationism bred a um, that antagonistic stance that I talked about, which um, also left a lot of evangelicals vulnerable to manipulation, um, which led to uh, a sense of being combative rather than being a stakeholder, coming to the table, mm-hmm. seeking to mm-hmm. contribute to the common good and have that conversation with others from different points of view. You know, I think right now there is the you know ongoing conversation that's always been part of uh, human history where most of the parts of society are trying in some respect or another to talk to one another, to negotiate a way forward. And I think evangelicalism stands towards that conversation for as long as I've been alive and, and probably longer than that has been to, to be off by itself in the corner um, rather than engaging in that larger conversation.
0: You actually have a great substack, and one of your substack articles uh, is titled so- something like this. I was taught to be a, a yeah. good private person and totally neglected on the, public, on the public side of that. And I think that's super important. That's obviously in our world, like that's right in our heartbeat of what we're trying to think about. And, and I believe you're right, and I wonder what you think about this, that it seems that there is a lack of thoughtfulness that has gone into really negotiating the role of religion in a person's life in relationship to religion in the public sphere and it's been a debated question from the beginning days of this nation when it was a you know when some of the colonies were designed as religious freedom outposts where religion was the Mm -hmm. defining narrative to you know a establishment of a nation that said we're not going to establish a religious, ever religious uh, establishment process in this country. And we've declared that to be true, but we really haven't funded it and fueled it in a way that someone can kind of navigate these things, right, and there's a lot of work that goes on in the evangelical world and other church worlds for people who are trying to figure out how to take your personal life and make it more public to share with individuals or to have it play out in your work environments Right. A lot of, a lot of that, a lot of, you know, what's your, what's your business calling, what's your work calling, how do you work? Very little when it comes to what obligation do we have to the whole? And it, I, I sort of get a little, a little dreamy sometimes that maybe we'll find out of this difficult period where our relationship of religion and civic life religion and government is at a low ebb right now it feels to me that maybe part of what will come out of it is some people really taking seriously this call to try to figure out a better way to talk about these things in in casual conversations and in more formal conversations with real, real legitimate thinkers and so on. Do do you have any thoughts about that? If that's not your, if that's not your thing, I totally get it. But do you think that's, do you think that's part of it at all? Well, yeah, I think
1: the term you use thoughtfulness is a good one. I think a lot of times um, the instinct of religious conservatives or evangelicals towards politics is one of like blunt force trauma. Let me just come in. Guns a blazing. um, Tell you what I think. If you disagree Uh, too bad for you. Like, this is the way it's got to be. And um, I I do think that uh, there's probably a pretty robust history of a different way of doing things. Um, But that hasn't been applied at scale throughout a lot of evangelicalism. And I would put myself firmly in the category of a student on this. I mentioned, you know, Reinhold Niebuhr, Um, You know, that's somebody who I want to read more of, but I I speak as somebody who um, is aware that there are people from other streams of Christianity who Mm -hmm. were probably brought up on Reinhold Niebuhr um, or are more familiar with his teachings. He's somebody that I, I instinctively sense from what I've read so far that, you know, he's one of the people who has articulated a different, more thoughtful way. Of, of doing this. And uh, I think what my book does more so is try to understand the roots of what created that poverty more than
0: yeah.
1: uh, being able to, to really um, talk about how do we, uh, you know, how do we do it differently. I think at the end, I'm really saying, look, I'm grasping and, yeah. and
0: stumbling um, right.
1: towards trying to do it better. Um, and, uh, and And that's where I'm at now.
0: Yeah, and it's and it's part of the human human endeavor. It's certainly part of the faith endeavor. Um, I, okay, if you have a minute, I, w- I want to run one one more idea by you. It actually came out of a an article in the in the Washington Post uh, about what's happening in Ottawa County, Michigan. So there's just a lot of things happening in Ottawa County. There's been a takeover of the county commission there by a group of people associated with the same group that has a very Christian religious narrative to what they're what they're up to. So we we spend a lot of time there. Uh, Washington Post has done a number of exposes on it and in this article that Greg Jaffe and Patrick Marley write they they use a line that was like one of those light bulb moments for me where it like illuminated this this reality mm-hmm. and and I, I'm not going to quote it exactly right here but basically the essence of their almost pass by statement and like, like a really good writer can do, right. You make your point in the thing that feels like it was a, it was a, a flyby statement. Mm. And it was that in the it, trying to and the, the trying to answer the question, why is America successful? Mm. Two groups come down on two different sides. The Christians, Christian nationalists in this particular case, want to tell a narrative of God's blessing. Mm -hmm. We have been successful because of the blessing of God, not the work of humans. Right. People on the political left want to say, we have been successful in this country because of the subjugation of certain people and because of bad practices that have damaged some people to give advantage to others. Yeah. And I experience that on a daily basis when I, the work we do and the people we talk to, there's people that are like, why do you people all want to talk about how bad America was? It's the blessing of God. And if we would do better and live better, the blessings will continue to flow. Right. And then other people are like, we, we have to tell the truth about how we got here. That Mm -hmm. this, these are stolen lands built and much of the, uh, the history of the country was built by stolen peoples. And, and it's not working for everybody, and we're building on top of the the pain of other people, and it feels like those two worlds have become opposite choices, opposite camps. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like there was a time when people would say, "I don't know, both of those things are true." Like we we can talk about both of those realities from a religious perspective. Do you think about that stuff at all? Does that phrase strike you? It's I, every once in a while I get these things that roll around in my head, and they're they just I can't I can't seem to they don't they don't go away. And this feels like one of those, like oh my gosh, this explains why two groups of people look at each other like I have no idea what you're talking about, and you are a liar. So I, do do you have thoughts about that? Sure, I mean I think the dynamic you're talking about is one of I don't know, like too much
1: of a binary. And you've said it mm-hmm. yourself now, like when you say both things can be true. I agree with that if we're talking about, um, we can say that America has both been very good and great and even historically great in, in human history. And we can also say that America has committed some grievous sins, uh, some of which were instrumental to its prosperity. When we're talking about what has made America successful, um, I would probably try to find a middle way through that. And just say, whatever your theological beliefs are, um, we can't, again, this goes in the category of something we can't really prove or even document um, in any kind of real substantive way. What we can do is look at history and see the ways in which power and sort of the um, luck of history and sort of circumstances has has put America in the perch that it's in. Certainly the application of power has been for, for both uh, good and for bad has been a big part of Mm -hmm. why America has been successful. Mm -hmm. And and that's a story of history. That's a story of studying history, knowing and understanding history. Um, And then, you know, the circumstances of history uh, or the circumstances of human development. I mean, the fact that we're, we're, we were separated by an ocean, big, big factor. The fact that Europe was destroyed after world war II and we in part because of that physical separation were left intact and then became the reserve currency of the world. Those are significant factors in why we are successful. So all of this is a story that we can know and understand and learn together with good and bad. Um, And it goes again to that category of what can we talk about that we actually know for sure, rather than fighting over things that are really at the end of, of the day, belong in the category of belief. And we're, you know, I'm happy to have people bring those into the public yeah. sphere, but it's a different category of knowledge.
0: Yeah, no, I I, I hear you. It, it just seems that like the things that give life flavor and meaning and make art and beauty and music are, belief like things, right? Not fact like things. And the motivations for so much of what makes people get up mm-hmm. and do what they do is well beyond like articulating the things we can all look at and agree on. Then there's something else just out of our vision, just out of our mind that we're like, there's a world there. There, uh, I have a friend who uses a phrase, what's the more beautiful world your heart knows is possible, right? Like that's the thing that drives you. And and it feels like when we get, and I'm a very facts sort of person, right? Like they that's what, I mean, really motivates me. And I nerd around and spend time on words and conversations, you know, three, four days a week trying to get to some of this stuff. Um, and it, facts are very unsatisfying, you know, they're the they're the French fries in the, in the happy meal. Um, Mm. like as soon as you you're done with them, you're like, Oh boy, I could, I could take more of those. Like they just, they don't really satisfy, right? People get the, and then there's something that like, they're like, there's a belief that drives us. And so I, I guess I'm just rambling on here about the fact that like we struggle because we feel like other people have a different set of beliefs that are going to win over ours, no matter where we are in the facts, and the information and the data and the things we can point to, and it feels like there's these two big camps in the world. and one camp is at war with the other, and says there can be no goodness of God story, and the other people are like, praise God, it's all about the goodness of God. Don't don't let your children be told at school that 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 these things were bad, and they've become, as you said earlier, like binaries, and they've 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 become dangerous places. And once you spend a little time, sort of. I don't know. Bringing the bringing the peoples together, you start to realize, huh? There's probably even a third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh way the, the thing we could describe to this. Because any binary I've ever found myself in is rarely been solved by just going to the other side of the binary. It's usually going somewhere else and then realizing, oh, there were eleven different versions of the thing. Thing I thought there were two options for. Now oh, it turns out there's eleven, uh, or something like that. So but, I mean, is that is that kind of what you're up to in your in your book too? I mean, it feels like that's what the book is trying to get out oh, in some ways I think I think absolutely
1: I mean I th- I really appreciate you saying that because it illuminates something for me that is probably something I need to work on when I talk about the realm of things we can know for sure to me that's a realm of adventure hmm. and uh, and excitement and um, discovery it's a world in which, that I'm extremely excited about. Um, there's new discoveries, there's new knowledge, there's so much joy in it. Uh, you know, the, the phrase truth is stranger than fiction is absolutely right. Like if we study history together, we will go on a journey of many surprises and delight. Um, and so I guess i probably need to do a better job of conveying that um, and, uh, and I appreciate, you know, you, you kind of bringing that up for me.
0: Yeah. The one, I mean, it just, I mean, that's a great phrase. It, it's such a pass by phrase too. That just feels like doesn't carry meaning. But when you really think about it, truth is stranger than the fiction you can make up, we say it in other ways a lot, like, man, you literally couldn't make this up. If a screenwriter pitched this to Hollywood, you know, who would have thought? Yeah. Cause that's, that's really how it goes. It, it, this is, this is something and, and truly our ability to describe something is not the same thing as understanding it. Like there is a there is a temptation to believe that description and precise description is the same as understanding. There's also a yeah. problem we have where truth, yeah. for a lot of people, really means facts, and they're not the same thing. Right. Uh, information, data, facts. Uh, May or may not be true, but I don't. know. Truth is this elusive little thing, but really yeah. matters. I mean, when you're looking at your 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 child or your partner or a person in a business thing or a, a person in a, 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 a I don't know, any interaction, and you're like, you're telling me the truth, right? Like you're not doing some postmodern deconstruction philosophical, well as Derrida would say, and his truth, really. Like you're just like, are we okay? Like can I can I trust you on this? Is this gonna like? That's how we live, and truth is super like, uh, up in our business, you know, we're all living on these on these truthy claims sort of all the time. And it's been funny, you you kind of write about it, how there was this flip. 25 years ago, it was the conservatives who were trying to say, you know, we need to return to truth. And now, It's just Freaky Friday. You know, now it's progressives talking about whoa, 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 hold on a minute. We need to get to some truth here. We can't, you know, an apple is an apple. You can't be putting up, you know, tell me an apple is a banana. You know, (laughs) it's like, my gosh, those are the arguments that conservatives used to say to people like me about why my postmodern deconstructionist attitude was somehow a danger. It's Mm -hmm. really a, I mean, truth is stranger than fiction on this stuff because we all really do want to live in a world that's trustworthy and i don't know john it feels like people just really don't trust each other it at sure. a level now that feels different than in my in my life i can't or my adult life at least i can't speak about other times and places and some of my um black church leader friends will say to me regularly oh you've just been living in a fiction that there was ever a time where we could trust each other like you 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 know Welcome. You know, good morning. I'm glad, you, I'm glad you woke up to the reality that some of us have been living in the entire time, but it does feel different to me. And, and I don't know what to exactly do with that. And that's why I appreciate your book so much and your work. Thank you, Doug. I mean, I would just say in closing
1: that I think what I'm ultimately about is finding a way to get closer to the mysteries of, you know, the ultimate things in life of what is ultimately real. Um, and true. And, you know, we do that by looking at the things closest to us, fumbling and stumbling and inching our way forward. And I think where it brings me is to a place of awe. Mm. And I think that is, in, in a sense, a place of worship. Um, and I would just invite people mm. to come out of their fortresses and to go on that journey with me. That's my invitation to conservative evangelicals, not to think like me, but to. Um, but to see that I've tried to examine my own story, be grateful for it, critique it, um, and that's something that everybody can do. Um, and I think going forward, you know, if we're going to be inviting people to come out of their fortresses and their castles, we've got to continue to do that ourselves first.
0: Well, thank you, and thanks, thanks for that work. Uh, thanks for being with us. When when people want to find this book, obviously they find it in all the all the places um, called "Testimony." John Ward inside the evangelical movement that failed a generation and they can also find you another place i mentioned you have a sub stack uh, i got to that through your website which i think is john is that yeah I, I remember that right okay. um yeah. so they can they can find and follow all of that there and uh, i'm guessing you're on all the social media spaces and places you also run a podcast don't you
1: yeah i do a podcast called the long game it uh i try to do it um at hopefully at least once a month, but sometimes goes a little longer. The last one was actually great. It was David Latt uh, who wrote uh, very authoritatively and fairly about the um, free speech uh, flap at Stanford law school. So um, lots of different topics on there.
0: Yeah. Great. Well, thanks for being with us today and to all of you. um, Hey, uh, okay. Mike, Mike uh, is asking just one very specific question. Have you kept up with Frank Schaefer? on his <laughs> stuff and what he writes and how he does it. And do you, do you have any thoughts about about any of that?
1: I haven't kept up with Frankie lately over the last several years, but I read a number of his books, you know, over a decade ago and uh, would correspond with him sometimes, but haven't kept yeah. up with the latest. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's another one of those sort of biographies of an insider of the seventies yeah. <clears throat> evangelical movement. And I'll just say to people who, aren't familiar with evangelicalism, not only is evangelicalism a wide ecosystem, there's many varieties. It's also really time dependent. The 19, well, the, the, all the 18 whatever versions, you know, 1860s, 1880s, 1890s were different. The 1930s version of evangelicals were different than the 50s, 1950s version. The 1970s were different than the 1990s. And uh, frankly, the 2016s uh, forward is also a different kind. If if you think of if take the metaphor of uh, a virus like the coronavirus, there are there are yeah. different variants of this thing that mm-hmm. are contagious in different ways and affect the human body in different ways and affect the body politic in different ways. And like we call it COVID nineteen because of what it was discovered there is an evangelicalism sixteen that is um, still in the body politic system that i think is particularly dangerous and has a whole set of characteristics that look very little like the 1970s version and uh, i know it's easy to just assume that evangelicals have been a thing are still that thing and will remain that thing it's just a lot more complicated than that so it's my take and if you want to add any correction to that since you're the guest here on the podcast you're welcome to
1: no i just think um there's always been a lot of change because it hasn't been an institutionally driven um uh movement you know it's been fairly anti-institutional and 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 largely um built around growth and so those are two incentives that drives it to be constantly uh shifting
0: i think yeah and it's built around people as much as it's built around any ideas or values. I mean, it's really a people-centric uh, movement and changes as people change. Uh, it can be its upside, it should be its upside. It's one thing I always liked about it uh, as an adherent. in it. I'm like, people matter in this world. You can actually influence this world a lot. Right. and people really matter and they influence this world an awful lot <laughs> and that's not always that's not always great uh, and sometimes it's quite wonderful but it just is that's the way that yeah. uh, that's the way that it is all right well we better stop now or Dan's like good grief Doug's gonna start up again we were just landing this plane like the, the wheels were, were down and we were coming in and here we go all right so John thank you uh, appreciate it and uh, we'll stay in touch
1: Doug thank you for having me on really enjoyed the conversation It's
0: great right. okay yeah. hey, y'all, hey y'all we'll see you uh, we'll see you tomorrow